The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 78 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 10th of May, 2021, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's episode, Rob D. and I have the opportunity to speak with an outstanding aviator that I would definitely place in the 10% category. And if you have not heard me use that term before, you will soon learn what that is all about. He is a University of Illinois graduate, an exceptional photographer, and avid cyclist, a green thumb gardener, a former Sandpiper Airlines captain, and assistant to the VP of Flight Ops and Flight Director. He currently flies a Boeing 737 for a U.S. mainline carrier we here on the show like to call Legacy Airlines. We are excited to hear about his journey and his philosophy on the profession of aviation. But before we complete our pre-flight for episode 78, I would like to take a moment to express our many thanks to Captain Jerry Quinn for joining us on episode 77. How's my sick voice? We enjoy the conversation and we hope you did as well. Thanks again, Jerry, and we look forward to having you on again real soon. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 78 of the Squawk Ident podcast is officially underway. To help me kick off today's show is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP, an avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his remote international sound studios on the seventh floor of the Westin Hotel in Guadalajara, where he is on day one of a two-day trip. Help us in welcoming our very own Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Hola, como estas usted? Uh, Muy bien, gracias. Uh, doing good, bud. Good to be back. How are you? Oh, man, I'm doing great. You know, we missed you on the last show. Uh, I know. And you had very good reason that uh, you couldn't make it. And what was that, sir? I I was hoping my boss would would agree that the reason was valid. But, uh, well, I took the opportunity to go out to dinner with my crew. Um, The captain invited um, the entire crew out to dinner and said, hey, dinner's on on me tonight. So let's all meet downstairs and go out. Right. It was Cinco de Mayo. And, um, you know, I had already had, I already planned on going out to dinner with him. But when he invited the whole crew, I was like, man, we have to go. Um, so uh, I, I felt kind of bad uh, telling you, I was, hey, Tony, I'm going to make the make the podcast. But um, I it was at the same time as the uh, the crew dinner. So I said, hey, man, I'm going to miss this podcast. So I'm going to go out with them. But the, the reason why we went out was uh, crew did a fantastic job. 
handling handling a medical situation we had en route to uh, our destination. Oh, uh, we had a uh, two medical doctors get involved. We actually had to call the physician on call, and um, basically what had happened when we had we had a young male that passed out. I mean, literally collapsed on the floor, and he was <laughs> non responsive for a few for a few moments, I should uh-huh. say, and uh, came back to it. And um, luckily there were two medical doctors on board. They were right on the, they were right there to help them. And um, the flight attendants, it, it, it was amazing. It was like we were in training. They, the way they communicated the information, you know, from the back to the front, up to the cockpit and, you know, um, and everything. And, and the challenge we had was that we didn't have our Wi-Fi system was down. So they weren't able to communicate um, through our primary means with the, uh, physician on call mm-hmm. to, uh, relay the, you know, the medical information to the people that make the, uh, uh, you know, the medical decisions for the airline. Yeah. And Med so flight, I think they had called. a uh-huh. Metaflight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they had a, they had a real, uh, they had to relay all that information up to us in the cockpit. And then we had to <laughs> almost do it basically the old fashioned telesis way. And, uh, you know, get over a station, call them up on the, on the radio with a phone patch and, yeah. and talk to the physician on call. So, um, you know, that we, we felt that they did a fantastic job. I mean, you should have heard how, how detailed and, uh, very, you know, professional and calm and, and, you know, quick, they kept us updated every five, 10 minutes as, as required. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were, we were like, wow, you know, this is this, this, these, these folks deserve, they did a really good job. They work really hard. They deserve, you know, uh, you know, so, uh, at least so, a way that we can show them how we much, we appreciate what they did. Yeah. Just take them out to dinner. So, yeah. And you know, that's so amazing that your, your captain also was, was down for, uh, not just taking the crew out for dinner, but to appreciate everything that, that they did in a situation that is definitely stressful. I mean, you train, you train, you train, but until it actually happens to you, you exactly. really, you really don't know, you know, how it's all yeah. going to turn out. Yeah, exactly. And and then and to add a little more detail to the whole situation, the four flight attendants back there had just come back from from furlough. I mean, they were all freshly trained. I mean, they were they were, you know, they're probably the best one. I mean, I not not to say that any other flight attendant wouldn't be able to do it, but you know, they had just come yeah. through the program. Their currency uh, literally recency, within yeah. a month and their Absolutely. recency of experience was there. Yeah. So it was, it was very refreshing to know that it can be done the way it's designed and handled, you yeah. know, with, you know, with extreme efficiency. Now, have you used the new app that the company just released uh, within the last 72 hours? Uh, it's called great work. Have you heard about this? <laughs> no. Were we supposed yeah. to? <laughs> so, yeah, there was an email that came out, uh, I think, a couple yeah. days ago. Uh, there's a new app that you can download from either the Android store or the, uh, the app store. I think it's called Great Work. And uh, the email explains on how to set it up on your EFB. But it is solely there to recognize your fellow employees, oh, okay. kind of like an attaboy, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's an app 
right on your right on your tablet now that you can download. Cool. And all you got to do is fill it out, put in their, I guess, their name, employee number, or whatever, and you can recognize uh, a fellow employee that has gone above and beyond uh, the call yeah. of duty, or maybe they're just doing their job, but they did so in a manner that is you know, commensurate with the policies and procedures and deserve recognition. So yeah, if, That's if awesome. you're a legacy yeah, we, airlines pilot or employee for that matter, uh, and you'd like to recognize a colleague, there's a new app for that. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I like that they're moving to all these apps. We, we, me and the captain just went through our traditional means, which is, uh, the company website and did the nonstop thanks for all four of them and oh, perfect. send them as many points as we can <laughs> send them. Cause yeah. how often do we get to do that? So, yeah. Uh, and these folks are definitely well deserving of that. So yeah. Thank and you. It's not thank often you, that you hear you. that. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us. It's not often you hear that. Um, so that's great. So it sounds like you had a pretty exciting week last week and yeah. uh, do you have a weekend full of more volleyball? I have the last one coming up this weekend. So uh, this past weekend was uh, kind of a, a, a blitz for me also because it's not not only was it Mother's Day yesterday, so I spent a lot of time preparing for that, but also my wife's birthday is tomorrow. Uh-huh. And since I'm on this trip, I kind of have to get everything kind of squared away for, uh, you know, just the little celebration that we do with her. So that was nice. Um, I mean, that was, that was very busy. Uh, but the last weekend of volleyball is coming up. And when I say the last weekend, it's basically the beginning of the end of, <laughs> of the volleyball season. Uh, we we got we all have to travel to Vegas for a uh, for a big tournament out there. So my wife and I and the two kids are gonna uh, try to do the non rev thing here this weekend and oh. and go watch some go play some volleyball in Las Vegas. But um, crazy as crazy as it sounds. There's only like two weeks break before they start trying out and going to start going to these other clinics and um, take uh, where other clubs can take a look at your uh, your kid when they play. So we're going to there's really no stop, no rest for the weary. Uh, We go right into uh, the next season, start looking at other clubs. So. Yeah. Wow, man. You know, my hat's (laughs) off to you. The fact that you're, uh, you know, able to to just keep up with this schedule. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) My hat's off to you. Congratulations. Thank Um, you. And congratulations and happy birthday to your wife as well. Please give her my best. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So yeah, so today's guest, I'm so excited that we were finally able to get our schedules to align uh, and have him on the show. Uh, You know, we've... I've known Andy now for for quite some time, and uh, and I know you recognize him from from yes. back in the day, yeah. the Sandpiper, the the airline yeah. name that we use here on the show as an alias to our yeah. former employer, uh, wholly owned portion of the Legacy family. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 great to have him on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited too. He's he's a very very um, impressive young man. And, uh, I'm sure once we, you listen to his story and everything, you're going to, everybody will agree with me, um, that he is a, a special individual and it's, there's definitely no question that legacy airlines has gained a great pilot, uh, by hiring this gentleman here. Yes, absolutely. Well, without further ado, why don't we bring him on to the show? 
Today's guest started his journey in aviation as a tender age child growing up in Albania. He immigrated to the United States at the age of 14, where he had to learn the language, the culture, and how to best navigate the educational system to achieve his dream of becoming an aviator. A product of Chicago's public school system, he attended U of I in Urbana, Illinois where he graduated with honors with a Bachelor's of Science in Aviation Human Factors. Just before graduating, he attended an airline recruitment event in Chicago that turned into a job opportunity with Sandpiper. That's the name of the airline we use here on the show to represent the regional carrier based out of Dallas-Fort Worth. There, he began his climb to success in aviation with his work ethic and tenacity, earning himself positions in the company that placed him at the side of both the VP of Flight and the Director of Flight Ops. He now flies for Legacy Airlines on the 737 International Division. Joining us from his home in Miami, Florida, please help us in welcoming to the show, Mr. Andy Lucia. Andy, how the heck are you? Hey, Tony. uh, Good to be with you. It's an honor uh, to be on your show and share my experiences, and I hope that uh, I can inspire a lot of young aviators out there. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you've inspired me. Uh, we first met oh, back in, was it 2008, maybe? 2000, yeah, about 2008. Flying together for Sandpiper. We were both FOs. And I remember, you know, I was getting off the aircraft. I'm not really sure what the location was, but there were air stairs, I remember. And so after all the passengers got off the plane... I got off the plane with my captain, and here you were coming across. We had never met before, and you were with your captain. And usually at Sandpiper, and every regional has a little bit different uh, procedures or standard operating procedures, but at Sandpiper, you had to do a post-flight after every single flight unless the in or the outbound crew was there to do their pre-flight before you leave the aircraft. So I was excited to see a crew waiting for the airplane. So that meant I didn't have to do a post flight. And uh, you came in right away, you put on your, your safety vest and started doing a post flight. And you came up to me and looked at my, at me and my captain, and said, Hey, that nose gear looks a little low. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty astute. And I was kind of impressed that, uh, you know, you, you really took it serious and it really did flag your personality and your and the perception that many people have of, of your professionalism and leadership. So, you know, thank you for being here today. Uh, you know, thank you for bringing that memory back to me. Uh, and, and, you know, talk about an honor to have you on the show. Uh, in, the, uh, in the intro, we talked about being somebody that is in the 10%. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, because I think that's very important. But Let's start from the beginning. You know, you're everyone that I have on the show, I always ask them the same question right out the gate. How did you get started in this crazy profession? What age were you when you first looked up and said, I'm going to fly at one of those? Yes. Well, again, uh, Tony, uh, thank you for having me on your show. And actually, on the experience that you and I uh, had on our first encounter, um, I do recall that was a quick turn, so we had to get going. And I put, um, I went around, did my walk around, and it it was something that uh, I always try to do um, uh, as a courtesy to uh, 
crew inbound crew members at our Sandpiper airline. Um, you know, most of the time we were crunch on time, so that would give the opportunity to our uh, FOs to go get a meal or, or get a break or, or, or use the restroom. Um, so, and, and, and I appreciate uh, you mentioning that event because um, I always try to do my best at whatever I, I, I have forth. So uh, someone noticing that and appreciating um, really goes to show that, you know, always give it your best and, and then, you know, you're always appreciated at the end. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, my, my aviation journey really started as young as I can remember. Um, I want to say at the age of five, um, I remember looking up in the sky and thinking, how cool would it be to be on, on a seat and, and fly an airplane? Um, in Albania, as you mentioned on the intro, uh, we grew up in a uh, small farm. Um, very few air traffic would uh, fly over our town. And it, um, it, that depended on which way the wind blew. Uh, we only have one airport. And uh, a lot of times, uh, if the wind flew f- blew from the north, uh, the traffic would be over our town. Mm. And I took that opportunity uh, to go sit outside, stare at the sky, and just enjoy that beautiful uh, sound that they made and the... Um, um, I could usually pick out when they would make the final turn to line up with the runway. And it was just a, a, an enjoyment. And from there on out, I just held on to the dream, hoping that someday it could become a reality. Yeah. And, and you know, most of us have, you know, similar stories of being young and having like either a parent or, a, you know, a mentor take us out to the airport to watch airplanes. The fact that your family grew up on a farm in Albania and you just happen to have the flight path of the one runway of the one airport <laughs> under your farm <laughs> or over your farm. It was, you know, it's just an amazing thing to hear. It's really, really cool. Um, and, and for most of us here in the U.S., we're spoiled because we really don't border many countries, right? <laughs> we have we have our neighbors to the north and our neighbors to the south. But when you grow up, you know, in 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 Europe, you have so many countries all around you and so many cultures, and, and it's just so interesting to hear. Uh, I know a fellow uh, migrant to this country. You know, as as our listeners that have been listening from day one understand that. You know, I, you and I have very similar past and. I don't, I can't say that. I can't say that, you know, I grew up in another country and I was looking at airplanes because for one, I was very young and in Canada and Toronto, <laughs> you know, airplanes. Yeah. I was like, whatever. <laughs> Wasn't even paying attention to it. Um, the fact that you can remember that experience at age five, that's, that's pretty well, cool. Yeah. And in addition, you did mention something very important that uh, being in, in that country in a farm um, and not having the ability to explore my um my desire for aviation um i you know we didn't have internet um very few tv channels to to learn about aviation and i actually did not take my first airplane ride until at the age of 14 which was to fly to the united states so i i really this was just more of a dream and how I envisioned aviation work than learning and and you know and, and having other people share their experiences with me. So um, that was kind of um, 
a, a childhood dream that did not have any backing. It was more of, okay, this is how I envision it. This is how I thought it would be. And um, I just hung on to it until I came to the States. And that's when kind of my vision broadened and I learned more about aviation. I learned more about the industry. I learned more about airplanes. Uh, but yeah, I, I uh, it was not. And and to be honest with you, growing up there, I didn't think that I would ever ever fly an airplane. It was more of a dream that, you know, I enjoyed looking up in the sky, kind of like a pastime. Yeah. But uh, you know, the educational system in the country, the financial, and and also the status you're at, and in most countries, uh, prevent you from you know mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. anything really. Um, as a farmer, you're, that's, that's kind of your, your set. You're going to be a farmer and that's, you know, that's, yeah. that's how it is. That's a yeah. good point. We, do you remember what, do you, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you remember what kind of airplane it was when you took that flight at 14 years old to, uh, I think you said to United States, what kind of airplane it was? Yes, I do recall, uh, very well. It was, uh, oh. on Swiss air. It was from Tehran, Albania to Zurich. And, uh, this, it was a Dornier, I believe. Um, I don't remember the details, but I know it was a Dornier. Cool. And it was about a two-hour flight to uh, Zurich. And we laid over there to catch our flight from Zurich to Chicago. And that was a 747. Awesome. Nice. I know. And I remember <laughs> staring at it when we were at the gate. I was mesmerized. And, and the first thing I was thinking is, how is this thing going to get off the ground? <laughs> With all it, these people, right? Yeah. Correct. It looked so massive and so big. I'd never seen anything that close. The only thing I would see was the closest I could see was maybe 3,000 feet as they were coming in the pattern to land. And I'd never seen such a big airplane. Um, and to me, it was fascinating. Just just taking that all in, looking at the airplanes was just something that I said, wow, okay, I, I think I can do this. I think I, I'm on my way to achieving my dream. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, I, I still have that feeling. Uh, you know, you've mentioned that, you know, seeing the monstrosity of an aircraft. I see that at LAX. I think it's gate number 43 where the 7-8 will park and it's like feet from the glass and it's angled such to where like you're looking right into the cockpit and the thing just looks huge. And I know Chicago has a similar gate where, you know, you're walking, I think it's at the end of maybe K concourse or maybe L concourse where you're, you're just walking and all of a sudden you look out the windows and there's a giant airplane sitting right there. And to this day, I mean, here I am, you know, tens of thousands of hours into this career field and I still, it still gives me chills. Like, man, that's awesome. That's <laughs> it's, cool. it's funny. You, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm sure you guys can share the experience uh, when a lot of these islands that we fly to Caribbean uh, usually don't have jet bridges. So it's usually air stairs. And every time you do uh, go out there, um, do the walk around, I usually do take a step back and look at it and say, wow, this is, this thing is so cool. It, it yeah. still brings that joy. This thing, this, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you're, so at 14 years old, your entire family migrated to, to Chicago, as you mentioned, and what kind of brought this change from 
leaving Albania? Was it just kind of to seek a better life, the ability to have a choice in your future and your career instead of following the expectations of your of your status in, in your culture? So I bet uh, my dad would answer this better, but I could, I could, I could go ahead and, and say what was going on in his mind. So we're a family of, of five. It's uh, my parents and I have two sisters, an older one and a younger one. At the time, my older sister was 16. I was 14. My younger one was uh, three at the time. And uh, it, it's a little bit of everything. I know my parents did want a better opportunity for the the kids of course you know they want to have um better education you know um, job and and everything else uh, but i i think um at the time i cannot imagine what was going through his head because the way i explain it to people is imagine your current condition and um taking your whole family to the moon you don't know what's there you don't know what kind of jobs they're going to be. You don't speak the language. So it's a very difficult, difficult process to undertake, especially when you have a whole family. But I know the, the, the bottom line was the better future, better future for our family. Of course, my dad wanted a better future for uh, my sisters and I. Um, and, and then at the time, th- there was a little bit of conflict, uh, civil unrest at the country. And this kind of made my dad's decision a little easier to just pick up and leave. Um, so there, there's a lot of factors yeah. that went into play. Yep. Yeah. And I think you, it's called blind faith, isn't it? I think that's what they term it, blind faith. Yes, yes. In a way, right. In a way, when you're seeing how your life uh, is, is, is at the moment, Rob, you know, sometimes you're just going to have to take those. Uh, big leaps and those major changes to hope for a better future for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you, as you came to the U S I know that we've talked before about, you know, you came here not knowing the language. So, uh, yes. some, another commonality we have together, we came into this country, not knowing the language and you ended up going through the Chicago school system. Uh, something that you're very proud of. What can you tell me about that? <laughs> Yes. Uh, before I start that, I always share this experience. And I think I told you, uh, flying from Zurich to uh, Chicago, of course, a very long flight. The plane was absolutely packed. Uh, midway through the flight, you know, um, the whole galley was dark. So everybody was sleeping. The shades were down. And I was so thirsty. I, I was just very thirsty. I woke up from a, a nap that I was having. And I went and tracked down one of the uh, flight attendants. And I was trying to tell them that, you know, I was thirsty, but I didn't speak the language. So I was trying to kind of make a sign of I'm thirsty. And they kind of offered me a Coke. And I said, no, you know. So then I went to the, I took the flight attendant to the lab and I pointed at the water. And that's how I got water. So speaking, uh. speaking of language, and then she was able to get me a, a glass of water. But speaking of nice. language barriers, Yes, it was uh, absolutely very difficult. Uh, uh, no, no language whatsoever. And coming here during that time, of course, you're going through your uh, teenage years. Your hormones are already changing, and and um, you are, of course, experiencing all the other stuff that goes in with your teen years, and not being able to communicate, um, with not mm-hmm. being able to you know, share your experiences or, you know, have friends. 
it, it was hard. It was hard. And then, um, as you mentioned, I did go through Chicago public school system, and I'm very proud of that. Um, hmm. A lot of people say that whoever goes through that system um, uh, does not, is not going to have a good future. And I disagree with that. And I'm, I'm one of the stories. I think anywhere you go, it's the work you put in. Um, and that's what counts. But, but going there has taught me a lot. Um, it was uh, a, a school that was mostly made of, of immigrants, meaning the, the majority of students were immigrants, just like me. Um, and, uh, but over time, I worked hard. I kept my dream in front of me uh, of wanting to fly. And one of the uh, <clears throat> uh, motivations that I had was that I wanted to get into a good school. I wanted to get into an aviation school. and and uh, just kept at it. Uh, I had great support um, faculty over at in, in my high school. Uh, they guided me. They encouraged me that you know every dream is possible. And I had a couple mentors that um, always believed in me um, and just kept at it. Yeah. And so you graduated uh, from high school and. You found yourself at a crossroads as every high school graduate in the U.S. finds themselves. And you had to, f you had to figure out what the next chapter was going to entail. And I remember you telling me you had a choice uh, between universities. Because your end goal, as you just mentioned, was a good education and an aviation education at that. You never lost sight of that. What transitioned you into your choice in going to U of I? So, yes, um, I applied to two schools and I got accepted at both of them uh, at the time. Um, all I know is that I wanted to fly. And uh, at the time, I learned about Embry-Riddle uh, down in Daytona Beach, Florida, and uh, I went ahead and applied. Um, and I also learned about U of I's aviation program. And um, I was leaning more towards U of I. It was two hours away and I wanted to be close to home. Um, drive back and forth whenever I wanted. Plus the in-state tuition, you know, um, as we, the finances weren't uh, uh, there for my parents to really afford out-of-state tuition. And at the time when I received uh, my acceptance letter from Embry-Riddle, um, I was really excited. I'm like, okay, you know, this is happening. I'm, I'm almost there. But uh, after running, you know, doing my homework, running the numbers, it, it felt that it was a little bit out of reach. And while I was still waiting for U of I, I kind of lost hope that I thought maybe U of I wasn't going to happen. So I, I kind of started making my decision to go to Embry-Riddle. Oh. And just at the last minute, U of I gave me my acceptance letter. And that's uh, when I said, you know, this is it. This is the school I wanted to go to. Um, and, and it's been nothing but great experience after that. Yeah. And so at, wow. uh, Champaign-Urbana was, uh, was where you ended up. Correct. How, yes. How was that, uh, program? You had the program of uh, aviation human factors. Was it, uh, something that was a challenge for you or did you just enjoy it? Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, I always, at least my personal experiences, I always tell people that 
flying is is fun. It's great. Is I mean, it's just everything you imagine it to be. Learning how to fly can be a little bit difficult. Um, so I, I can share both experiences uh, where I've been happy. Um, that was mostly when you know you had a, a good check ride. I got a rating, but then you know you've had bad days when you know you weren't you weren't grasping the concept of, of, um, of a maneuver or you were having trouble with um, some of the coursework. But, but overall, I think um, I'm the type of person that I always seek support. I always seek um, other people's advice. So I, I utilized everything that U of I had to offer to overcome all of these barriers. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it made me a little stronger. Um, it's it's a process that I think everybody shares in the end, but I always tell people it always takes me twice the amount of work that an average person would to learn something. And that's just a personal thing I think I have. And most people say that's not true, but as you know, Tony, I try to be a perfectionist and, and want to make sure that I, I do it right uh, and not just, yeah. just uh, cruise by it. Yeah. I was going to say, I never learn, so you're way ahead of me. <laughs> you still can't get right, Rob. <laughs> I still can't get it right. <laughs> what school you went, by the way? No, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never learn. <laughs> well, I just follow the crowd. <laughs> well, it, What's it, he doing? That's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because at the end of the day, I still feel that way, right? You know, you're always thinking that. I'm never that type of person that says, well, now I know everything. You cannot teach me anything, especially being in our industry. We know that's not the attitude you want to have. I'm always saying if someone else can teach it to me better or has a different way of explaining something, please do so. Um, No matter how well I think I know something, there's always room for improvement. So, yeah, yeah, correct. Definitely in this industry. Yeah. In this industry, the day you stop learning is the day you need to start hanging it up because you have to have that mindset that there might be a better way of doing this or, you know, what, what can I take this? What technique can I learn? Even from my captains that I fly with on a regular basis on the flight line, they say it all the time. I, I, my FO that I flew with last week just taught me this. Check it out. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then now my captain's teaching me this. And now maybe in a week or so, I'll go fly with a captain and I'll be like, hey, the last captain told me about this. You know, check. Oh, okay. So we're constantly evolving our skill set. And, and I think more flight hours you get under your belt, more experiences you're privy to in this industry and in this career progression. Uh, it absolutely makes a difference, especially if you're paying attention and, and you, you know, you take it in and you file it away and you're, oh, good technique. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's a very good point uh, because I think the earlier you learn this, um, you know, whether it's school or training or um, whatever other industries you're involved in, the better I think you're off because constantly I think I go to work and I'm never home to say, uh, after you know a four day trip or whatever, that oh man, I didn't learn anything today, or or I did everything yeah. perfect because I'm always perfect. Uh, so <laughs> you know, and and that's that's the beauty about this job. Sometimes 
you know, when you learn something and say, wow, I, I, I wish I wish I would have known that earlier. And you're kind of mad at yourself how you did not have this information available to you earlier. So um, you're right. We were always trying to uh, perfect our techniques and make ourselves better. Yeah. You know, and I just wish I could learn that in terms of my interpersonal relationships. <laughs> <laughs> So, you and I both. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so you you graduated from you and I with honors. This absolutely goes against what you just said that it takes you twice as long, and you know you or you know you have to work twice as hard. But yet you see the rewards from that. To graduate with honors from the University of Illinois is a a feat that not many people can say they've done. So congratulations on that. I'm not surprised, to be honest with you, uh, having known you for so many years. But that was a really interesting transition. And when I found out that you didn't even have to go through the pain and suffering of most CFIs out in the country having to be in the right seat of a Cessna with a student who is constantly trying to kill you. You know, we jest, but that's that's really the attitude that you have to have in order to maintain a safe environment and, and you know, keep the learning process going. You didn't even have to do any of that. And it's an amazing set of circumstances that allowed you to go from graduation to a class date at a regional carrier. How did that all happen? Well, thank you, Tony. Uh, I appreciate uh, all the kind words. Um, you know, um, the way I look at things is every time you complete a task, you're on to the next one. Sometimes um, my sister and most of my friends that know me tell me, well, you know, sit back, enjoy what you just accomplished. I'm like, okay, that's in the past now. We're going to go on to the next task. <laughs> so I, I think that's that's a fault that I have that I just need to sit back and and, and enjoy um, you know, kind of what I've accomplished up to that point. Uh, but um, I think what, as you know, our industry hasn't been very flattering in the past couple of decades. Uh, you know, we had 9-11 and I had started training in 2003. That's when all the legacies had furloughed and, you know, there were no jobs to be found. At the time, it was a very, very... Um, bad picture in, in the aviation industry. And I remember there were many people that were telling me, this isn't the time to enter, you know, you should pick a different field. Uh, this is something that, but, but I look past that. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this for a job or I'm not doing this for, you know, for money or, or, or to show off. This, this is more than just that for me. I'm doing this for me. And, and this is something that I, I, I've been dreaming ever since I was a, a little kid. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I always tuned everything out and focused on, on my goal. So with that being said, um, when it was a week before graduation, going back to my transition from school to um, a job, um, a week prior to graduation, um, I was roaming around our aviation um, uh, dispatch room, and I saw a flyer that said uh, the Sandpiper was going to have a recruiting event in two days in Chicago. And I was going to come home that weekend. It was it was a Saturday. I was going to come home that weekend to bring some of my stuff, 
because I was moving in a week after my finals and I couldn't do it in one trip. So I said, oh, that would be really neat. I am going to attend this recruiting event. And I had a buddy of mine and I said, hey, let's let's go attend this. You know, um, let's go hear what they have to say. We're not going in there for a job. And he agreed. He's like, "Okay, I'll go with you. Uh, That Saturday, uh, we went to the hotel room. It was uh, at 9 a.m., the hotel banquet where they were going to have this uh, recruiting event. And uh, they gave the little spiel for about 45 minutes about who Sandpiper was and what kind of candidates they were looking for and how they have bases all over the country. And after the uh, event had concluded, um, my buddy said, hey, you know, let's let's leave. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to go talk to one of the recruiters. I just, you know, I just want to thank them for their presentation and, and tell them how informative they were. He's like, OK, fine. So I stood in line on one of the uh, lines that they had kind of a personal questions, uh, an answer session. And uh, I approached the recruiter and I, I told her, I said, Thank you very much. You guys were very informative. I really enjoyed um, everything you guys had to say, and um, maybe someday I'd, I'd hope to, to, you know, to apply and, and get hired by you guys. And and then she said, "Oh, would you like to interview right now? We're doing interviews on the spot." And then I told her, "Well, you know, I'm not prepared. I I don't have a resume." And I honestly, I told her, I just learned about this two days ago and I have finals all next week. So I I didn't, I didn't really come here for an interview. Well, she said, well, I tell you what, when will you be free? And I'm like, well, uh, the following Monday, I said, I should finish my fine, my last finals on Friday. And the following Monday I should be able to, uh, you know, to finish everything. She's like, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you email me and uh, we'll set you up with something and uh, we can figure out uh, when, when to have you over in Dallas. And I said, okay, I, th- I thought she was just being nice. So I went, I went to school later that evening. This was a Saturday and around 7 PM, I looked at my schedule and I said, okay, yeah, Friday's my last final. I was going to drive home that following Saturday. And I tell her Monday I'll be available. I emailed her at 7 p.m. At 7.15 p.m., she sends me an email back with an itinerary and a packet of what to prepare for an interview. And she says, great, we'll see you on Monday in Dallas. And this was like December 15th or something like that. It was the week right after finals. 2007. Yeah, what year? 2007. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. And, and at the time, I remember when she was asking me about interview and I said, well, I have to be honest with you. I don't even meet your qualifications. At the time, they were acquiring a thousand hours and a hundred multi. And, and she said, well, how many hours do you have? I said, 300 hours. And she's like, oh, that's OK. We like you guys. She meant from our school. You guys always uh, have no trouble with our, our um, uh, training. Wow. So, yeah, I I emailed her. And again, that following Monday after my finals week, I was I took a Sunday flight over to Dallas and there I was interviewing for the job. And uh, Antonio, they hired me. However, I only had 17 multi and I believe the FA required 50 at the time. So they said, go get the additional time, um, photocopy that fax it to us and we'll put you on the next class. And that's exactly what I did. Wow. 
So you went out, got Maybe. found a, a flight school or a, a place where you can rent a twin and went up and just built time. Yeah, actually, my buddy and I, uh, he was a uh, CFII, I think it is. Um, and he, uh, he, him and I shared it. He gave it to me as dual given and, and uh, um, he put it, logged it in as, as dual given and I oh, logged M-E-I, it in as dual yeah. receipt. Multi-engine yes, instructor. M-E-I, I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. been so long. M-E-I. M-E-I, correct. That's it. There you go, yeah. Rob. It's nice. been so long. So we split the cost. <laughs> I, I know it was a that. huge expense, but it was for the job. Yep. You know, That's and, awesome. You know, to get, we just had uh, Jerry on last show on episode 77, and he was telling us about his ab initio program that he went through. He got hired on at Mesa with zero hours, and they went through the flight school. Those, those kind of, you know, from the beginning programs really don't exist anymore. They've, they've progressed into what we now call the cadet program. Um, the cadet program, same thing. If you can apply and get accepted into one of these cadet programs at a legacy carrier, you can, for all intents and purposes, have zero hours and mm-hmm. go through the program, follow their, their mentorship, their curriculum, their criteria, and get hired on. Now, Obviously, FAR-117, in the wake of the uh, Colgan Air crash that happened in Buffalo all those years ago, changed everything. And now we have to have an ATP minimum in order to work at a Part 121 carrier. That's the FAR Part 121 carrier or airline, U.S. airline carrier. You have to have an ATP rating, regardless of what seat you sit in. But at the time, when you and I, and even Rob, went through the program, we were commercial pilots. That's all you needed to be. That was the minimum, the commercial rating. And a commercial rating with 300 hours and 50 multi got you there. Um, So, you know, wow, that's an amazing story. Uh, We've seen how the opportunity when you're a low time pilot to go right from training, right into training again, without that kind of stagnant period of, oh, I got to build time and a lot of times what happens, and we didn't really talk about this on the last show, is your instructors, if they're sitting there after a while, if you really don't have a passion for teaching, um, it becomes kind of tedious. And, and those instructors lose a little bit of that motivation and the attitude starts to grow. Um, and and you, then when you show up at a, a regional airline initial ground school, sometimes... Uh, it's kind of a shock because you've been out of that mindset of training, 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 or you're receiving the training. Um, and so to go from a training environment, a low time, 300 hours, and then go right into a long-term initial ground for an airline, sometimes it's kind of beneficial, wouldn't you say? Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Tony. At the time, um, most of my instructors were what you had mentioned. They had been there for years and years. They had accumulated many hours, not because they chose to. They just weren't getting hired at the regionals at the time. Nobody was hiring. So as far as that motivational factor, I did have a couple encounters in my school where the instructor was kind of checked out and uh, you had to uh, learn on your own. Um, That kind of ended towards the end of my training because the newer uh, instructors were coming in they were more eager to teach and build time. So yeah. that kind of changed. Um, but yes, it was very beneficial. At our school, we did a lot of uh, sim type work. 
And uh, I think that gave me a, an absolute edge over everything. Um, I, I recall when I went through the training or when I went through the interview process, uh, for people such as myself that were low time, they would send you through a jet transition course, it was called back then. It, it was about maybe 10 hours that they purchased. The company paid for it. Um, and, I, and I think, um, and then you had a contract of two years. If you left before that, then you kind of had to pay uh, the difference. Right. But they, I remember the recruiter told me, she's like, um, the sim, at the time we also did sim rides. And I remember mine was in an ATR when, when the evaluation sim ride. Uh, I remember the instructor said, we, I'm sorry, the recruiter said, we normally send um, guys uh, with your experience through this jet transition course. However, we don't think you need it. And I said, wow. well, if you don't think I need it, then I won't take it. She's like, okay, yeah, we'll sign you up for the next class. Um, so, <laughs> I, yeah. I, and I'm like, well, I'll take your recommendation. Uh, that was kind of a two-week thing where you do ground school and a little bit of sim work. Yeah. And they would sign you off and tell the airline, okay, he's ready and he can go on to this course. Because I recall uh, we had a class of 40, and I, I recall that nearly half of them did not make it at the end. Some uh, washed out during the ground process, others washed out during the sim process, and a couple washed out in IOE. Oh, wow. So um, it was a very intense recall. Do you guys remember when we still had the orals and the check rides? I mean, it was it was really intense uh, at the time. Yeah, we saw grown men cry because they're like, <laughs> "I just got a pink slip." You know, my yeah. my career is over. No, you're not. Your career is not over as long as you learn from it and move forward. But still, you know, we we said this a hundred times before on the show. It's like, look to your left, look to your right. One or both of those guys aren't going to make it. And if they make it, you're probably not going to make it. So study up. You know? um, speaking, Tony, I want to share this. Speaking of a pink, uh, pink slip, at the time when I went through the interview process, my buddy and my school were like, oh, don't do it, man. You know, you're so low time. You're going to wash out and then you're going to have a pink slip and no other regional is going to ever uh, carry, touch you again. Yeah. They're like, you need to go fly you know, be instructor or go fly somewhere else, get some experience. And I said, no, she said I could do it and I'm going to do it. So I just, I went all in and, and, and luckily when it was a positive experience. Now I don't remember any of it because I was so nervous and everything was <laughs> it's just all a blur. <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> I was like, sometimes I wake up and be like, where am I? What am I doing? It was more of, and I'm sure you yeah. guys know you had the same experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and oh, Rob, yeah. Rob did too. We've talked about this before. Tenacity, yeah. attitude go a long way. It really do. definitely does. Yeah. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And I think you know having that attitude uh, anywhere you go, I'm ready to learn. Please, you know, if I know something and you have a better way of teaching me, uh, please do so. And, and, and you know, you find that people do take their time. You know, if you need the extra you know, time to learn or the extra sim session and they do help you. Yeah, yeah, they really do. You know, and not even though, you know, we kind of paint the picture that at the regional airline, the training is more difficult. And, and yes, it is because it's new. It's a new experience for most people. Now, if you've already been to a regional and then you're coming over from another regional and you're doing a transition, it's no big deal because you've already experienced the initial shock of, oh, crap, this is really fast paced. 
which which is really the issue. It's it's new, it's fast paced, and they don't have time to sit there and, and you know coddle you and 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 really spoon feed you the answers here. You have to do the work. And it's hard work. It's a lot of information. I mean, how many manuals did we used to carry around in those kit bags? Oh, like 40 pounds man. worth of books and JEP charts and and, yeah. and you had to know it or at least have it quickly accessible and know how to find yeah. it. Um, so yeah, it was a different time. Your your tenacity got you through it and you ended up on the Embraer 145. Was that the first aircraft that you were hired onto? That is correct. Um, I always tell people that um, I'm, I'm not as smart as I look or I, I, I appear. So I, I think, Tony, you kind of overhyped me there. <laughs> not but, at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I didn't know regional airplanes existed until I was hired at Sandpiper at the time. So I... I thought they were all made by Boeing or Airbus, to be honest with you. It shows how clueless I was. Um, all I cared was about flying. Um, and I didn't then, know what an um, Embraer was when I got there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had no clue. Brazil? The they make people... airplanes in Brazil? Yeah. What? Right. Exactly. What? And this I has a know... Rolls-Royce motor in it? Or <laughs> like Allison the car? It <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't yeah. Boeing make everything, right? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very... I, I can admit it because uh, a lot of people, I think maybe some of your listeners uh, would go in there and, and you have a lot of experts that can, can tell you everything about any type of airplane you ask them for. I don't know. You know, I, I just know as much as, you know, what I fly right now. I couldn't tell you anything else. But I, I know going through the aviation program, I had some of my buddies name everything under the sun. And that, at the time, I didn't even know who made our airplane that I was flying. You know, later on, I found out it was a Piper Archer. And then I learned about what a Piper was. So, but, but so that, that's not to say that, you know, you'll be a failure just because you don't know this information. Um, I, I think to me, yeah. um, having the passion of, of flying goes way beyond the, the knowledge that you know. I can actually share you a quick story about our hiring process. Um, at the time, when when the sandpiper would hire, they would put you in a room, and kind of all the uh, people that were going to interview that day were in that room. And I was pretty sure that room was being watched or tracked or something. And there was this guy who came in, right? Who came <laughs> in? He did not have a tie on. He his shirt was unbuttoned, and he was actually showing showing some chest hair. And I was like, man, this guy is pretty pretty confident that he's going to get this job. And I remember I was sitting in the desk all scared about, you know, who's going to interview. And at the time, if you guys recall, what they did was they put you in the room and they would call you one by one as they interviewed you. You know, first you did your tech interview, then you did your HR. And if you pass those two, they would invite, they invite you to, to do this sim ride in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So I remember this guy, he sat on the desk, not in the chair, and was swinging his hair, and he was talking about how many hours he had, all the jets he has flown. He's like, yeah, I went to one of those recruiting events, and they said, yeah, we'll hire you right on the spot, but you just need to come to Dallas so you can do the formality of an interview, and, you know, you'll have no problem. I have 3,000 of that. I've flown on this jet. I've flown on that. And I was looking at him. I'm like, how are they going to hire me when this guy, he's, he's, he's the best. <laughs> this guy is going to get the job. 
I kid you guys not, they pulled him out first. Two minutes later, he comes back. And if they tell you, go grab your bags, you're going home. He comes and grabs yeah. his bags. And he, he was the first one to leave. And it goes to show you that, the, I mean, the attitude and, and the just the bragging and everything and his appearance, it just, they overlooked at all that experience and said, you know what? No, we don't want this guy to be stuck with another guy because it's not going to be good. Exactly. They teach you this in yeah. the private pilot course. I think uh, principles of learning, uh, hazardous attitudes, one of the first Correct. lessons, a macho. Um, yes. You know, your story is is right on point. You know, Rob and I are kind of sitting here smiling and laughing as you're telling the story because <laughs> we've seen it as instructors. We've seen it as Czech airmen. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, this industry, when you have the responsibility of all the lives that you will carry in your career and all of the equipment that you are either responsible for or jointly responsible for as either PIC or second in command SIC. Um, they, the attitude is everything. And at the end of the day, if you have an FAA license in your back pocket, you can fly an airplane. Okay. You've, you've jumped through the hoops and you've, you've done all the written tests that you can, you can get your hands on to get here. That's fine. But are you going to be an, a jerk or an a-hole? <laughs> Am I going to be okay flying with you for a week? That's really what, when you're interviewed and you get past all those initial hurdles with the HR interview and the technical interview and the SIM portion and the medical portion, somewhere in this interview process, especially at a regional carrier, you're going to be interviewed by an actual line pilot or check airman. And really what they're looking for, they're, they're going to ask you some technical questions, sure, but that's really their way to judge, are you an a-hole? <laughs> That's really <laughs> what it all comes down to. Yeah. You know, am I going to be okay flying with you cramped into a phone booth-sized cockpit for a few days? Or am I going to want to kill you after the first 10 minutes because you're, <laughs> you're driving me Annoying. nuts? <laughs> yes. That's really what, you know, and yeah. something that I wish I knew early on. Uh, simply because it would have calmed me down a little bit in the process um, and not to follow the status quo as you didn't. If you would have listened to your peers uh, when you were in training, you probably would have stayed behind, got, you know, went through the expense of getting your flight instructor ratings and going through building your time, you know, because you had to follow the, the norm, the status quo. And instead, you listened to your instincts and you thought outside of the box and you weren't going to let you know, the noise coming from around you dictate your decision-making process. You knew you had the confidence and you're humble about it, which again goes to prove that you were doing the right thing and following the right path. And here you are, you ended up at a regional carrier and we met in the process, uh, took you a while to upgrade as it did myself and Rob as well, because cyclical nature of the industry, a post 9-11 uh, industry, uh, it goes up and it goes down. We saw furloughs, we saw bankruptcies, we saw mergers, um, we saw base closures and equipment retirements all over at Sandpiper at the time. And that did not stop you, did it? You ended up 
in the office getting some positions. How did that start? When, here you were an FO flying the line in Chicago, being able to drive back and forth to work, which is great, especially at the beginning of your career. And you ended up taking an opportunity to get a position in a special assignment. That's how it all started, wasn't it? Yes, that's correct. I've been, Tony, I've been very fortunate. I think uh, I've come across many individuals, uh, work colleagues uh, outside of work that have really given me kind of inspiration and, and uh, motivation to do more, you know. Um, and one of the things is with Sandpiper, I, I really enjoyed the, the, the work ethics. I, uh, some of our, our captains, as you know, had been there a, a long time. Um, you know, that was due to uh, 9-11 that kind of stopped the flow and the hiring at many of the legacies. And uh, at the time, it was considered one of the best regional carriers out there. And they took the pride. And, and I enjoyed that. I, I think I took the pride as, as being at one of the top carriers. And, and, and I always wanted to do more. I wanted to get involved, how I can, you know, help people, how I can help our work colleagues and how I can um, be of service uh, to the company. And, and I, I recall at the time um, we were going through chief transitions. So one of our chiefs at the time flowed to the legacy carrier. And so a new chief came in. And this, I had flown with this new chief before. We had a good rapport. And he, this assignment was only by invitation only uh, because it wasn't unofficial for pay purposes. Um, the chief said, I would like for you to do this position. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is a great honor. I, I mean, he believes that I could undertake such a huge task of course, I'm going to do it. Of course, you know, you've got my, my full uh, loyalty in it. And uh, it started off as just a couple of days here and there, kind of learning the system, the ins and outs. And it became to uh, almost a full-time position while I was still flying the line. And I did that for about three years. I was still an FO. And, and, and also, uh, one, one other point I wanted to make why I, I wanted to do something uh, different was, as, as you know, being an FO kind of a long time on the same equipment, same base, there was no movement. You kind of wanted to mix things up a little bit. And I like a little bit of challenge. While it was great, you know, it was comforting. You didn't have to do anything but put the gear up and then put it down when you were asked to put it down. <laughs> give or take. But, uh, give or take, right. But I, I wanted a little bit uh, of uh, excitement, a little bit of challenge in the mix. Uh, and, and so it was a great honor to be asked. And I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll take this position. And, and, and as you know, um, you're dealing with, with, with pilots that can be both a positive and a negative experience. So the job in itself, while I enjoyed every bit of it, it was challenging at the same time. Um, I did that for about three years because our company started having a lot of movement. Um, a new position opened up in Dallas that was also by invitation only. And the person that was doing it flowed to Legacy. And so I was asked to uh, undertake this new position. And I believe they, they enjoyed the work I did and the work ethics um, and the time that I put in. 
Um, and so, and again, it was a great honor. I said, absolutely, you're trusting me to do this and, and be kind of on the inner circle of, of flight operations. And, and it was an eye-opener because a lot of times uh, we don't see the inner workings of the company, uh, but actually being a part of it and seeing how everything comes together, it amazes me to this day how any airline functions in that matter. Uh, because there's so many components that come in. It's like a jet engine. There's so many yeah, components that have, correct, that have to work and everything has to be synchronized to produce the outcome that you need. And the same thing with the airline. It is such a complex operation and so many components that come in. And it was just an eye opener. And I got to appreciate what I did uh, uh, more. Um, and, and, and again, I, it was something that gave me challenge. And, and I like a good challenge, even though I, I would complain at times seeing how it was, uh, it was uh, difficult and it was um, nerve wracking. But at the same time, it was an unbelievable experience. Yeah. And we'll be right back to hear more about Andy's journey in aviation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been talking to Andy Lucia here and hearing his inspiring story on how he came to the country at the age of 14 and had to learn the language, the culture, the education, ended up determined to become an aviator. So everything he did led him to position himself to be on a fast track to get a job at a mainline carrier. And we have found out that that is exactly through chance, through tenacity, and through hard work. That is exactly what has happened. Now, Andy, we talked about your leadership roles with Sandpiper, um, how you've always kind of positioned yourself to seize every opportunity that has presented itself to you. You know, we talked about the 10%. And, and Rob, you recall the 10% story? Um just a, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, just a quick quick one on that. Uh, I flew with an FO at one point uh, later in my career at Sandpiper. And he had an attitude, not unlike the one of the Mr. Macho you were talking about earlier. So here he was on the flight line. He's like, wow, you know, I've been here almost two years and I haven't upgraded yet. And this is BS. And I put my application out to every single major out there. And no one's calling me and it's because I'm a white male. And I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. So I just kind of let, you know, let him dig his own hole. And, and you know, about <laughs> second leg of the day on first day of flying, I, I kind of looked at him and I said, can I give you some advice? And he, his ears shot up and he was like, uh, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to guess that you've been flying with senior captains here at, uh, at Sandpiper. And he's like, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I can hold a line. I, I'm flying with senior captains. I said, yeah, I, I can tell because you sound just like them. Uh, you know, you're complaining about how long you've been here, which is a blink of an eye in the grand scheme of things. I'm like, what, are you 20-something? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, so you got 40 years in this industry. You've, you're only on your first two. Um, okay. 
And I said, you know, the problem with you is uh, from my previous career as a, a wholesale manager for a, a big box retailer, uh, I was in charge of hiring. And I would look at applications throughout the season and I'd have three or 400 applications on my desk. It was my job to whittle them down to the top 10%. And those are the ones that I passed on to my boss and they would look at them and start calling in for interviews. I said, the common denominator here is you want to be in the top 10%. And what that means is your application in reference to aviation, if you have the hours and the experience, well, hey, that's great. And, you know, anybody can have the hours and experience. And I'm going to venture to guess that the majority of pilots out there looking for work have more hours than you. So, okay, you have, you met the minimum qualifications. Good for you. But you're in the 90 percentile, meaning most of the people are just like you. Now, it's the 10% that I would pull off the stack and put on the short stack. Those are the people that have all the little extra bullet points, the volunteering, the human resource uh, experience. You know, maybe you're a, a line pilot. Maybe you're a CFI. It doesn't matter. If you're doing all the little extra things, working in the office, trying to learn what that actually entails, how to run a company or a business or charter operator. Are you in the flight department? What are you doing? And yeah, some people think, well, you're, you're just, uh, you know, uh, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. And it's like, well, it, that's easy to kind of be hypercritical of someone saying that they're just, you know, for the company. It's easy to put that label on someone. But what's not easy is to constantly be learning and constantly moving forward. As you mentioned, Andy, a little earlier, you're constantly looking at the next step in your profession, in your career. You know, we, we've all, all three of us here on the show today uh, can say that we've been in that tier of that 10% where we've worked in the office or we've done the check airman duties where you're basically an instructor for the airline to make sure that you know, everybody's got, get their paperwork in order and they're ready for IOE and, and, you know, ready to be out there on their own. Those responsibilities are the extra effort that you need to show in order to really have a successful progression. Now you don't need to do it. You could get along just fine, but now you're in line with everybody else. So to be in that top 10%, the fact that I saw that in you in a blink of an eye, on a turn, when we first met, I was like, man, this guy's sharp. It really does put you in that category. And I know you're humble and you're like, ah, you know, but it's true. Um, and that's really the best advice. Your story emulates that. It's the best advice you can yeah. give someone who's coming up, who wants to be a successful aviation professional. And, and it's right there. Aviation professional. You got to give it your all. You got to do that extra stuff. You got to volunteer your time. You've got to not be afraid to learn an aspect that's going to be a little more work. And it could be a jeopardy event for you. But it puts you in that position to be invited, to be an assistant, to the VP of flight, to be invited, to do something that may not even have a title. But at least that's that bullet point that you can put on your resume that in the future, 
when you're out there, there's a downturn and maybe you're looking for another carrier to fly for, that's what they're going to look at. Yeah, I think, Tony, you, you, uh, you make uh, very good points there. And I think one of the things I want to emphasize is that I didn't do these things where I had a checklist that I said, okay, I need to follow this and then that and then go here and then do that. I think I know we, we've known people in our industry that have done certain things like check airmen, oh, because I want to get hired by a legacy or I want them to pick me out. So they've done it for the wrong reasons. And a lot of times um, it may not work out the way they, they planned it. So I think, the, the, at least for me, um, they turn kind of into hobbies and challenges that I pursued. It's not that if I check this box, I'm going to get X, Y, Z in return. And I think I do this on most of my things, um, on anything that I do in life. Um, and, and of course, um, some reward would be um, welcome. You know, of course, everything that we do is we want positive outcomes, but it may not be the case. And, and at the end of the day, I'm happy with what I did because I enjoyed it or it was something that I undertook for personal reasons or not for to get recognized or to make more money or... I, I, I truly feel that if you do something that you enjoy and you're passionate about, the money will later come. Um, and most people follow the money first and then they find out that it doesn't work out the way they do. So, But I'm here to tell you that these plans, uh, while Tony, again, they're very flattering, but I'm here to say that uh, in life, sometimes you wake up in the morning and takes a turn that you didn't expect. You know, it could be positive or negative. And uh, I think I'm very blessed to some of the outcomes that I've had. And of course, there have been challenges along the way that haven't worked out the way I had, the way I expected. But, but overall, I enjoyed every part of it. Yeah. What would you say was one of the biggest challenges while at Sandpiper and out on the flight line? Well, um, there have been many challenges. I think um, one of the challenges has been kind of getting used to the airline um, industry and the, the schedules and, and the, the work. Uh, because like I mentioned it to you, going into this, I had no idea how any of this worked, how the job was. I just wanted to fly. So adjusting to the reserve life at the time, um, right when I got hired, about a couple months later, um, the uh, Sandpiper at the time furloughed. Um, I was not furloughed. I was able to hang on, but I was the bottom guy in Chicago for about a year and a half. And that was a little bit challenging. The reserve rules were not that great. So I ended up every time um, there, I had a reserve day, I was out there flying. And, and at the time, if you recall, we'd have six day trips. If you had six days of reserve, they would just you'd start with a turn and they just keep tagging on and on. So I think getting used to that and, and for me personally is I later on, I started preparing every time for six day trips, even though it was a turn, my bag was a six day trip bag. Yep. So, so I, I think once, once I, I overcame that and I showed up with the attitude that I was going to fly a six day trip, if it was two days, Hey, that's a bonus. You know, I get to go home earlier, but I, I think then I, I became a little calmer. So getting used to the airline, um, 
schedule, that was kind of one of the, the most difficult things, I think, that took some time to adjusting. What was your most rewarding experience that you had at Sandpiper that brought you just pure joy and, you know, elation, you know, if there, if there ever was one? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, th- I think our work colleagues, I have to say I've made so many uh, friendships uh, such as you, Tony, that we still keep in contact with. And uh, most of our work colleagues have uh, had the opportunity to flow. Uh, however, there are still some that, you know, chose to finish their career off at, at uh, Sandpiper. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think just gaining all that experience, it's like every person I meet, you know, I always say, what can this person teach me today? How can they inspire me? And, and it's, been, it's been kind of a blessing because uh, everyone offers something. Now, not all experiences can be positive. I'm sure Tony mentioned, like Tony mentioned earlier about the a-holes of the group, you know, they belong to. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, even, even the a-holes, you kind of get the experience of what not to do. How could I handle something better yeah. in the future if I was in that position? So yeah. work colleagues, I think, would have to be uh, the most rewarding yeah. thing, Rob. Yeah. Right. Great question, Rob. So 11 years at Sandpiper, and you had the opportunity to follow this illustrious, at the time, groundbreaking flow through to Mainline. And here you are at Legacy Airlines, 737 pilot. And did you actually move? Because I understand you're now based in Miami. That's a big leap and change from being at home in Chicago, and now here you are at Mainline in Miami on reserve, for at least at the beginning of your, uh, your time here. Was the transition difficult for you? Um, well, I want to start off by saying 11 years may sound like a long time, and I know most of our uh, uh, colleagues had had to stay longer than that before they had the opportunity to flow or get hired. Yeah. But I want to say that 11 years flew by so fast yeah. that, uh, that I think, um, <laughs> looking back at it, if you had told me you're going to be stuck for 11 years, it was something that was going to scare me. But looking back, I'd say, wow, those 11 years were amazing. The experience was amazing and everything in between. Blink of an but eye. Now going back. Yes. Blink of an eye with man, unbelievable experience that we can carry on throughout uh, the rest of our career. So uh, going back to flow, yes, I did move to Miami. I feel like uh, that's it's some of the best flying that I've ever ever done, and I think that I I could ever do. Um, you know, the Caribbean, the Central America, the South America. I mean, it is. You go to work. I feel like when I'm home, I'm working, and when when I'm at work, I'm on vacation and time off because I go to work. To have time off. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm sure you guys can share that experience because when you're home, you, know, you got to mow the lawn, you got to do this, you got to do that. And yeah. Um, oh, yeah. when, when you're away at work, it doesn't feel like work. It's just unbelievable. So um, yes, I moved there and I've been happy. I, uh, initially, um, we had the choice of uh, LAX, DCA, LaGuardia, or uh, Miami. And I chose Miami. Um, and I thought maybe I was going to be there six months to a year until Chicago 
was going to, you know, open up and have more um, first officers. But I loved it so much that I said, nope, I'm not. I'm going to stay here. And I moved permanently, bought a place down there. And I love it. Love every bit of it. Yeah. You know, and I, my, I have a special place in my heart for Miami. <laughs> I really do. As you notice, I changed my background here on our Hey, Zoom call. does that say 26? Because that's where <laughs> yeah, my, my house say, is. It's trying a block to see away. The, uh, oh, really? It's like 11 or something. Yeah, it's on 26. Is that, does that say 26? Uh, it looks like know. it says 11. I can hardly see it. No, that's a window. Window through oh, it. That's it the window right there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay. That, you know where bottom, that is? That's at the um, confidant. Okay, that's nearby where I live. Is it? You're I'm right? just a block away from the beach and right there, living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> it really, truly is a vacation for you then. It is, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, nice. I love Miami. It's, uh, let's see if I can. You know, every, sometimes we get captains from different bases and when they fly through there, they just absolutely love it. And everybody says 737 Miami is the best flying in the system. What? Wow. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, no, definitely. I, I, I really, truly do enjoy, uh, the Miami flying, the Central America flying out from there, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, it really is uh, an enjoyable place to go, and and especially if you have a good crew. Oh, forget about it. Now I notice your background. You have there, uh, and before we, you know, we kind of wrap up your journey and start getting into the Q and A. Uh, you're pretty, you know, I'd say professional photographer. You know, I've been following your your social media and all of, you know, you and I both have this. Uh, affinity for photography. Um, you absolutely <laughs> blow me out of the water when it comes to some of your images that you're able to capture. Is, is the, that skyline behind you uh, one of the images you captured from the flight line? Yeah. If uh, uh, some of your listeners and viewers are able to see this, uh, this was a red eye from Las Vegas to Miami, and it was about 3 a.m. We were just coming up over New Orleans there at the bottom. You can see the ah, city. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, we were at 41,000 feet. That was at the height of the pandemic. We maybe had two passengers in the back. Um, <laughs> and it was super smooth flight. And to the naked eye, it looks like a cloud. Of course, the radar is not painting anything. And the captain goes, man, what, what is that cloud there? I mean, we're not showing anything on the radar. I said, oh, that's not a cloud, my friend. Let me show you what that is. So I pull out my camera and I set it on a 15-second shutter mode, pressed it away, and it captured it. And bam, and he saw it. Oh, my God, wow. And um, I said, yeah, the naked eye wouldn't be able to see that, but the camera with a long enough shutter exposure, you're able to see it. So... Um, I, I enjoy photography. I enjoy aviation. Photography is kind of my uh, hobby outside of aviation, although I say photography is work and aviation's hobby. So sometimes I get too mixed, yeah. but they're all mixed together. Um, I, I do both at the same time. And some of the shots, the night shots are the most challenging ones. As you can see here, the Milky Way uh, galaxy. Yeah. You have to have perfect conditions. You have to point it a certain way. And you have to have super smooth flight to be able to capture that. Yeah, and I'll, I've done it many times. I was just about to ask you, I'm like, how can you Maybe. have a 15 second 
exposure and not hit, be completely blurry. You must have been like flying on glass. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, many times, correct, many times to take such a challenge, a lot of uh, such a photo, a lot of photographers will tell you that you need to try a lot, many tries. And, and I, I must have taken maybe over 50 shots and I take 50 and then I, I go through which one was the uh-huh. best capture one. Yeah, because uh, some as soon as the aircraft has a little bit of a ripple, the whole thing is ruined. So you just have to keep taking it until hope that one of them was just perfect. Yeah, for fifteen seconds, it's it's steady. Yeah. So so I, and and here here's here's the trick too, Rob. If it's beyond fifteen seconds, you can actually see the stars move. So you're gonna have the, the stars. You're gonna have the uh, trail of the stars, and it looks like it's blurry, but it's the actual movement of the Earth. So, so beyond 15, se- 15, you'll get that. Yeah, 15 seconds is the sweet spot, unless you got fancy equipment that moves with the stars. They have those those expensive stuff where you put your camera and it tracks the sky and it moves along with the sky. So it so what camera up. are you using for that photo behind you? Um, I'm using a Canon. I'm a Canon guy. I've been Canon for 20 years, ever since the first digital camera came out. But uh, I'm using a Canon. It's a PowerShot G7X Mark II. Nice. Now, it's just your basic, it, it fits in your pocket. Uh, the reason I, it's small, but it's just your basic uh, manual Point and shoot, uh, camera. Yeah. Point and shoot, yeah. but with manual features that you can oh, I have, I got have manual, right. Is that, does that, the Mark II, that has a, is that an SLR with the exchangeable lenses or? No, no, no. It's just, it looks like a point and shoot one. Mm-hmm. I don't have it with me, but the reason why I like this, because I have the SLR with interchangeable, but those are too big to carry. Yeah. This specific one, you can fit in your pocket, put in your a kid bag. It's, it's really uh, compact and that's kind of, I don't use my phone. Good for in between pictures. for tra- traveling and all that stuff. Correct. I think taking pictures with your phone, it's kind of an insult, but uh, you know, <laughs> hey, <laughs> you, you you only do that if you if you have no other camera and you need to prove to somebody that you took that picture. Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, before SL, before digital photography, I actually uh, studied photography in school, and we've kind of talked about this. Andy and I've talked about. I have a. a a bachelor's in film production. And so I was going to be a cinematographer. That was my thing. And so this was all on, on, on celluloid film, not digital. And when digital came out, I was very hesitant because I was one of those, oh, I'm a purist. You know, if it's not, uh, you know, a, a good uh, film that I can touch and, and develop myself. And I even had a dark room when I was in high, in high school. I had built my own dark room wow. in the garage. I mean, I wow. was truly... You know, with, there I was with my black and white Omega, was it Omega C 700 uh, enlarger or something like that, or C 100 enlarger. And anyway, so I never really went to digital. I ended up with a Panasonic, uh, this is first generation. <laughs> and then I think I had a Canon Elf at one point in my mm-hmm. kit bag. And then, you know, the iPhones were in my back pocket. And I, as I've progressed through all the iPhones that I've ever owned, and here I am now with the 12 Pro, and I, I, I like it. I like the the feature on there and the fact that it fits in my pocket. Now, I miss not having the control. Uh, and, and I think, yeah. you know, that's what really has me mesmerized by your photos. I could tell that they're done just so well. And you, you've manipulated the light and the, and all the filters that you, you then use in post and, 
some of these photos, I just, I look at them and I go, damn, Andy, come on. <laughs> this you know, is awesome. <laughs> you know, our cameras, our phone cameras have come a long way, actually. Uh, they, they're, they're, they do pretty well, but there are certain things like the night sky and yeah, can't do certain, it. yeah, you can't do you it. Can't so do it. I, didn't have a big I, enough lens on it. Correct. Correct. And so I, I'd like to share those experiences, you know, with, with other work colleagues and, um, and it's yeah. usually, you'll find that 99% of the guys you fly with and gals, of course, love photography. And that's a great topic to yeah. talk about because yeah. everybody just starts off with politics. I'm like, oh, no, no, let me show you this picture. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about photography instead. <laughs> let me show not, you this picture first. Yeah. Let's Section 37 <laughs> cinched it for me. Now work, 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 work. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's, <laughs> let's not <laughs> talk <laughs> about politics. So it's a great conversation starter and Absolutely. great topic to spend four days and I've had guys that I, I tell them, oh, can I have that picture? I'm like, yeah, it's yours. Oh, how much do you want for it? No, it's all yours. Uh, I'm glad wow. that you're, you're a fan. That's awesome. That's, That's cool, awesome. Man. Yeah. And, and yeah, if you're willing to share a few with our uh, viewers, we'll put some on the website. Uh, Absolutely. After the show. So you can link my, my uh, social uh, media account yes. and they can look at them there. Yes. Absolutely. We will absolutely do that. Uh, just to wrap up the... Uh, you know, the, the journey portion of the interview, um, you know, you, here you are at Legacy, uh, been here now two and a half years, I, I think we said. Correct, yes. Um, has it been exactly what you expected or is there more to it? Uh, I think it's lived, it's been beyond what I expected. I, I can't describe it. I think, like I said, every day it's like going on vacation. Um, uh, at first, you know, you know, it was challenging like i said i was a perfectionist i wanted to make sure I, I did everything right and you know uh finish the training successful and and kind of um merge with the new pilot group um as well as i could but other than that oh my god it's it's been it's been wonderful uh our, our work colleagues are amazing and it, and it's been such a, a an eye-opener um to, to see, again, how this giant airline is able to just work. Yeah. And, 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 and it's and it phenomenal. Huge. And, and we're, yeah. we're part of it. We're part of this, 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 these gears that are turning this airline and moving it forward. And, and it's been phenomenal. Yeah. So what it, what it probably, if you had to surmise to one or two moments that have been the biggest challenges for you throughout your aviation journey, what would they be? uh challenges i mean i wake up every day thinking it's going to be a challenge tony just to be honest with you i'm like what is what is the world going to hurl at me today but um i think overall um gosh uh challenges just being able to adapt i don't know i think we're, you know we're we're humans and we get thrown at so many different situations and I just want to adapt best at, at whatever the situation is going to present at the moment. Um, I, I can't. I can't really say I've had any challenges where they stood out. I, I think every day, like I said, is a challenge, but but not not in a in a bad way. It's it's a challenge that I think would make me a better aviator and would make me a better person. Yeah. Have you had any in-flight emergencies that uh, you had to handle? <laughs> Yes, I, I have. Um, at the uh, Sandpiper, I had a, um, 
cabin depressurization, and I also mm-hmm. had a cabin uh, smoke. Yeah. That uh, we handled it per the book, ran the book, uh, brought the airplane down safely, and you know our training at its best did its thing. Yeah. Now, recently, about a month ago, uh, we have seen on the aviation forums a few articles coming in from uh, overseas where there was a pilot that had to handle a single engine procedure in a, I believe believe it was a 777. I'm not quite sure, but it was one of the carriers over in the Middle East, actually. And at the end of the event, you know, it was a successful landing. They ran through their emergency non-normal procedures or, or abnormal procedures, whatever their company calls it. They landed the aircraft. Well, she ended up suing the company for the post-traumatic stress that she incurred from the event. Now, I'm not here to judge her. I I have no interest in being a sideline <laughs> critic of what happened. But it did raise a few questions in our industry, especially at this level of the game. Do you see after having two experiences where that could have been pretty traumatic, you know, to have a cabin depressurization uh, at altitude and have to do, you know, go through the emergency procedures uh, to descend at a particular pace to not injure anyone, to not injure the aircraft as well. And then also, you know, to have smoke. I mean, that's pretty dramatic to have smoke in the cabin, or even if you have smoke in a cockpit, that could, that could be pretty disastrous and pretty stressful. Do you think that that would uh, warrant anyone saying uh, somebody's liable for what happened? Well, see, uh, just as you mentioned, I'm, I'm not in a position because each, each, I guess each scenario would present its own different challenges that we're not aware of that may have been um, happening, you know, from company not performing, you know, regular maintenance inspection. Uh, who knows what, what the scenario may have been. But I can tell you from personal experiences, um, we're so blessed to have, first of all, the safety record that we do. I mean, our airplanes are just phenomenal day in and day out. And again, sometimes when you sit down and think a million different pieces are in that thing, and if one of them goes south, you know, the whole thing could not be working. It's a pretty, you know, scary thing to think about. But I, I know from our personal uh, experiences in our company does a phenomenal job maintenance-wise and everything. Um, I know the experience I encountered, it was a little bit stressful and uh, and scary at the time. But again, we reverted back to our training. What do we need to do? And like you said, okay, you know, at the time, actually, um, at Sandpiper, I was the first officer flying and the captain says, well, you continue flying. You do what you need to do. And I'm going to run through the checklist, make sure we didn't miss anything. Uh, declared an emergency, initiated the descent. And uh, actually, it turned, it turned out we blew a pack. That was the smoke that we came and that was the pressurization. And automatically, the checklist told us to, uh, I believe, to kill both packs at the time. So um, we had to come down 10,000 and under, and actually we were over champagne coming in, um, uh, coming into Chicago. So that's, that, that was a huge, uh, maintenance hub, 
at the time. So we were just able to land right there and uh, maintenance took the aircraft. But, but from personal experience, um, liability, I guess, goes as far as to the negligent of the parties involved, you know, whether it's company or the, um, the contractors that, you know, our work or, or, or whatever the inner workings are, um, that, that took place. I, I, I can't personally say what took place there. And like you said, I don't want to be the, the guy that's going to judge something that I know nothing about. Um, yeah, but I, I can tell you from personal experiences, sure, it might be stressful, but it's part of our job. It's part of our everyday thing that we're trained to do. And, and we know these risks and these risks are why we're up there to take care and make sure that we safely land the aircraft. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Well, Andy, I want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, final couple thoughts. If you could go back in time just for a moment and whisper in the ear of your younger self, what would you tell him? So one of the things uh, I would whisper me now, too, uh, is to just take it all in and enjoy. Uh, everything will kind of work out in the end. Uh, I know that at, at the moment it may seem stressful and it may seem like there is no end result or positive results. But I think at the end of the day, uh, everything works out and everything um, will kind of find its place. And to also keep doing what I'm doing, I think, you know, over-preparing, while it can be overworking or while it can be challenging at times, I think over-preparing is a good thing. It keeps you on your toes and um, yeah, and it better prepared. Yeah, keeps you in your, in your game. Yeah, Absolutely. For sure. Final thought, think back to a person in your life that has made the greatest impact to your success, who would that person be? And what do you want to say to them? I don't want to single anybody out. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I feel like um, every person deserves their own thing and um, deserves their own appreciation because I think everybody's had an impact one way or another. Uh, but overall, influential support, um, I, I would say my sister, my older sister has been kind of my cheerleader the whole way when times were tough and when times were good. But I've had other uh, friends along the way and colleagues that I've met that have been such an inspiration. And again, I don't want to throw names out there and, and leave anybody out there, but I'm thankful for everybody that has uh, encouraged me. And, and I think having that, that social support and seeking that social support um, can really be beneficial in the long run. Oh, that's, that's so wonderful to hear uh, that, that you, you get it. You stand on the shoulders of all the aviators and all the supporters that have helped you on your journey. Um, and that's wonderful to hear. Andy, where can people find you on your social, if you want to share that? So, yeah, you, I mostly use Instagram and uh, I kind of share the experiences and I have many people that would ask me questions and I welcome, I, I take the time to answer everybody as far as, you know, my aviation journey or any advice they need. Um, Instagram, you can follow me. It's, uh, it's Albanian, which is spelled A-L-B-A-N-D-I-A-N. And uh, you can find pretty much all my pictures over there. Excellent. Well. I, I just want to say again, thank you for joining us today. I know that uh, we got a little bit limited on time. You're off to get your 
your second shot. I had my second shot a few days ago, uh, which we talked about here in the beginning of the show. It kicked my butt. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> keep us keep us updated on on your progress with that. Uh, I do appreciate again having you on the show, and we look forward to having you again here in the near future. Well, thank you, Tony and Rob. It's been a pleasure uh, sharing my experiences and uh, like. Yes, I have many more stories and, you know, we'll have to do this again. I ah, appreciate that. All right. Thank, thank you. Andy. you. Thanks, thank Andy. You. Well, in closing, I'd just like to say thank you to the frontline workers out there. The doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, bus drivers, Amazon workers, Uber and Lyft drivers, and of course, all the airline and airport employees that show up to work every day to provide the essential services that they do airports have been busy right rob oh they're crazy they are busy yeah and no the food lines are getting a little shorter because they're opening more restaurants finally i actually saw an article about this on on the aviation (laughs) business information board that kyle runs uh that they Mm -hmm. were talking about the food eateries at airports and how they need to reopen them up and you know and how food scarcity is definitely becoming an issue and so yeah it is hey it's awesome. It's good to see. Yeah. Yeah, I walked through I've walked through the terminal at about 9:45 this morning. DFW. And I guess it's around the time of our ap- afternoon push, I guess, but the terminal was a zoo. I mean, we are now dodging, you know, slow walkers. Uh, they're you know, back. The carts. <laughs> yeah. Excuse the cart. Excuse the cart. Excuse and the, cart. the lines. Uh, uh, you know, lining up to to uh, to get food uh, um, for the airplanes uh, for the flights were, you know, all the all the restaurants were the lines were out the door. Oh. So, um, you know, as, as as horrible as that is to sit there and wait for food, it is a welcoming sight because you know people are traveling again, and uh, you know that, that's <laughs> we need your business. So, you know, it <laughs> welcome really... back. It's good to see you. Yes, and we're very <laughs> grateful. And you know, this time of year, it's starting up. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so the other day we had a, uh, I I know this is kind of going off on a tangent, but I'm going to show you this um, on our little Zoom camera here. We had a uh, a. A hailstorm, and this Uh-oh. was a hailstone from a town just like two towns from my from where I live. Oh, as soon as I can find it, I'm gonna pull it up here. I got it. Oh, here you go. You'll probably be able to see that in the uh, camera there. Oh my gosh, that, that <laughs> isn't that like, crazy. That's bigger than golf si- golf ball size. That's yeah. like it's almost oh the size God. of a baseball. Almost. I mean, it's oh probably the size God. of a of a racquetball. That's crazy. I mean, I've experienced hail, nothing like that, but <laughs> I learned something. I was listening to, uh, one of the podcasts that I, that I frequent, uh, relatively, uh, let's just say regularly. Um, and they were talking about anybody that lives in Texas has furniture blankets in their garage. Yep. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yep. If there's they're a hailstorm the coming, you throw the ferny blankets on top of your vehicle. And that'll yep. help prevent hail damage. And I was like, does that yep. work? Really? Yeah. You know, little things like that. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not for that size, but it's certainly, we, we'll get, we'll get uh, a lot of hail 
um, just pea size or, you know, even less. And you'll, you'll hear it. I have these really big windows in my house that go up to the, up to the, uh, the vaulted ceiling. Uh-huh. And you'll, when the winds are coming in, right, the hail's flying. Oh. It just sounds like somebody's throwing a whole bunch of little pebbles at your window. Yeah. Oh yeah. One of these days, those things are going to break. <laughs> uh, I like, you know, in Europe uh, in Italy, when, when I would go there every summer to visit with my grandparents, they, the apartments or the houses there, you know, they're in this mm-hmm. buildings, usually, you know, 10, 12 stories high and you have balconies and all the way around. And usually there's like two residents per floor. So, you know, one person has one side, the other person has the other. Anyway, every window, every door, everything has these shutters because people go away on vacation uh, for usually two months out of the year, oh. in August, July, August. So they go to their, you know, houses in the country or their houses or their places at the beach and they have this big thing europeans do this all over europe they have like this month-long vacation at least and they leave so they have these security shutters well they act as both security shutters and weather prevention shutters and and i've seen them here in the u.s especially uh, i've seen quite a few in texas where they're mounted on the outside of the window and and they go in the ones that have them built into the home is really nice where they're it's like a roll-up garage door with slots. Yeah. So you can open it to the point where all the little slots show. It lets the light in. And then you can open it all mm-hmm. the way. Uh, and then when you leave yeah. the house or you have a storm coming, you drop these things on the outside of the window and you know, like fiberglass yeah. or whatever they're made out of. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe it's time to invest. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I need new windows like anyway. So I'm, I'm waiting for one to come through the window anyway so I can claim it on insurance. There you go. <laughs> 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 yeah. Call the insurance guy. <laughs> Is that Jake yeah. from State Farm? Just saying. Oh man. Yeah. Now I have USAA. They call me right away. There you hey, go. you had a big storm in your are you guys okay? I'm like, yeah. That's nice of them though. Yeah. Well, you know, I hope that all of you out there in podcast land are enjoying Squawk Eye Dan. Please help us out by making sure you subscribe and follow the Squawk Ident podcast. If you like what you hear, just spend a moment and write us a review on either Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share the show with a friend as well. We appreciate your support and especially your feedback. You can also send us audio feedback and comments via our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee. There you can find audio archives, photos from the flight line, our Squawk Ident Pilot Shop, and guest book photo tab where you can see pictures from some of our guests. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search the Squawk Ident Podcast. One final thank you to Andy Lucia for sharing his journey with us today. And thank you, Rob, and all you listeners out there for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks for flying with us, folks. Take care. (laughs) 